Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher. It's pre-NCAA tournament. I guess technically Thursday night there's four play-in games, so lots to talk about NCAA tournament. Our bold predictions, which are money. Last few weeks, we'll give you those. We'll also got a new segment. I'm going to flip the script on Mike Gallagher, third segment. We'll do that. Second segment, Luke Morrow, the play-by-play guy of the Citadel Bulldogs. We'll talk to Luke, good friend of mine, and we'll see uh, his thoughts on the Citadel, and maybe he can explain um, – what hasn't been going right for them because it hasn't been a lot. And so we'll see what he says. The one thing I will say is it's almost guaranteed a one-score game, at least judging by the last two games ETSU and the Citadel have played. Jay Sanders, Mike Gallagher, Sanders sidekick. With you, we'll start there. Uh, our take on the ETSU side of things, and we'll get Luke Morrow's take on the Citadel side of things. And it's going to be interesting, Mike, I think, to see ETSU play back-to-back. I know there's always the big talk of every coach. The biggest – Improvement is from game one to two. Well, if game one to two had 20 days, whatever, three weeks in between, is that really your best improvement, or will this be the most improved? And for the defense, they didn't miss a beat, but for the offense and the continuity, which I think is more imperative to get reps, how will ETSU do back-to-back weeks? I think that's the burning question for me. And can they put 60 minutes together, right? Because they've had 60 good minutes of football, but it was the second half of the Sanford game, first half of the Furman game. Coach Sanders last night the coach show talked about the ground game, right? That that is the key right now on the offensive side because without that, and you saw you know Jacob Sailors shut down a bit in the passing game, did have six catches, but just 29 yards. When you keep that average low for him, as long as he's not able to bust that big passing play, that's good for the opponent. So maybe you'd say the running game plus the the screen game, the extended running game, quote unquote. Um, Quay Holmes last week, 18 for 67. You know, it started out pretty nice, but then the second half, Furman put the clamps down so um, definitely going to be a close game there's no question about it I think offensively we've seen some interesting things and you and me were talking about a couple of these yesterday but you know Nate Adkins this was someone that coming in we cannot talk enough about the expectation and the ability of Nate Adkins and so when you're only able to play the amount that he's played over the first couple of weeks and going forward you know yes he did play more last week he has one catch for seven yards on the year. Going forward, if he can play more and be out there and be the threat that he has been billed to be by this coaching staff and that he's quite frankly shown in the past from time to time, then that's going to be a big asset. Isaiah Wilson is an interesting one to me because it's not like he hasn't been involved, right? I don't think there there is maybe a receiver on this team that's going to be the dominant uh, six or seven catches for 130, 140 yards. Now, Will Huzzy was that against Citadel. Last year, I think it was seven for 143 and a touchdown or uh, right in that neighborhood. But day in, day out, you know, on a week-by-week basis, Julian Lane Price has been nice these first couple games. Four catches, 83 in the first week, four for 78. Last week did have a couple of drops last week. One in particular I know you called out on the show on Tuesday. Um, I thought a difficult catch, but one that that top-end receiver is going to make. Isaiah Wilson – kind of struck me as that guy for a couple of weeks in his first season. Of course, then he had the injury. Now he's come back, and he only had one catch for five yards last week. His average is very low as well in terms of yards per catch, just like um, when you're looking at Jacob Saylor's in last week at 4.8. So big plays are obviously going to be a theme of this game. They were last year when Raleigh Webb had, I think Coach Sanders said, 73. It, it, it kept growing, didn't it? Yeah, it was 73. <laughs> uh, but it was a long, over-the-top completion. Really, it was you know one yard short for the Bucks last year against the Citadel. And that's been, I think, as we've talked about a number of times, a microcosm of these last couple of years, right? Came out on the right in the first year, wrong in the second year. Now, this year is it bound to even out. I know I talked to Mark Hutzel about that on the ESPN Plus broadcast. Like, are, are, is the law of average is finally going to hit you in the middle and you end up going, you know, four and four? Or now, in this case, you can't really go four and four. It's either going to be three and four, four and three. Um, or will it continue to sway drastically one way or another? This is a perfect game to kind of find out because the Citadel has had a really difficult season 
they have been in some of those close games. They have not been able to come out on the right end of them. I'm excited to talk to Luke Morrow just to see what he thinks about things on the Citadel side uh, because at this point you wonder how much that zero in the win column, not after you know seven or eight weeks, but we're talking now almost seven months, right? I mean, that zero is weighing heavily on the mind, I'm sure, of many of the players, the coaching staff, when you have to sit there and stew on it during a quote-unquote offseason, as it kind of was a mini-offseason for the Citadel because they played in the fall and the spring, how does that sit with you going into now a fourth week after you lost four weeks in the fall and possibly going into four straight losing weeks in the spring? It would be in my head to no end, and I'm interested to see how that affects them. Well, and especially after back-to-back sort of heartbreakers because they miraculously go spread, throw the ball, and tie the game up against uh, Chattanooga to get to overtime. Then they score first. Chattanooga then scores, goes for two, and that's the third straight year I think they beat them by one. And that's the second time in Charleston they've gone for two in overtime to win the game. So just gut-wrenching there. And then sort of the things that didn't go their way, and it could have been worse. I mean, it ended up being a seven-point game, but Western Carolina really could have ran Citadel out of Cullowee which is shocking to me considering how, really, Western Carolina have played. Now, I'll give Western Carolina credit. They completely scrapped what they had been doing and went with the Tyree Adams super fast, run the ball, some things that I think they had not been showing, and I think that did catch the Citadel off guard, and the Citadel early got burnt on several big, big, big plays. But then in the second half sort of caught up and you know, kind of held Western Carolina in check for the most part. And the Citadel do what they do. They went for it on a lot of force, didn't didn't get a, a couple. Well, they got a couple keep drives live, but they went for it fourth and goal, didn't get it. And late in the game, couldn't get a fourth down to go their way either. So, uh, curious to see. I want to go talk about Rydell because I think quarterbacks more than maybe, maybe kickers, but quarterbacks, I would think reps, back-to-back week, game action, like they benefit the most from seeing game stuff. So, I'm kind of curious on how Rod Dale does in this game because he came out, you know, hot cakes on fire, whatever you want to say. He was eight for his first eight, right? Then he had the incompletion. Then he goes 11 for 12. He extends that to 14 of 16. Then he goes in- incomplete interception. He goes 17 to 21. He's 19 to 24, but then finishes the game three for 11. Hmm. So, you know, it, even though he threw the interception, he came out with three straight completions. You know, one yard, a 36 yard, a five yard, and then incomplete. You know, then you got a two-yarder, no-gainer, three straight incompletes. And really one that one of those was the, the drop, and, and the not the one across the middle, which was thrown behind him, but the one that got knocked away. Uh, you know, and then it was just kind of tough going the, the rest of the way after he was 19-24, to 24, just three completions, a five-yarder, the 16-yard slant, and just a, a little three-yarder to Huzzy. Um, and ETSU, I'm kind of curious him. He clearly has trust in Julian Lane Price. I think he's clearly found Noah West. My thing is, though, if Nate Atkins run those routes, it's, he's going to find the same guy. So I'm curious to see how can he get Huzzy and Wilson and some of those other guys involved in the pass game. And I asked Coach Sanders, I don't know if I asked him on there, but I asked him, did he see the confidence in Rydell because he was thrown before the breaks? And he was like, yes. He was like, you know a guy's feeling good about the concepts and what we're asking him to do when he is already throwing the ball well before a guy has come out of the break and it is on the money. And I said, well, what was the difference in the second half? And, he, and this was not on air. This part I know was not on air. He said, well, some of that's on Rydell because he didn't send guys in short motion or motion or get guys in spots. So they lined up initially in the right set. And then Rodell's, you know, again, maybe that's confidence, maybe he's throwing some incompletions, maybe a bunch of other stuff. But what led to further incompletions is if you're expecting a slot guy to come in motion and then run a short whatever route, but he's not sent in motion, so he's trying to get there from the numbers and he's not there on the right time, then you've got to get off that, you know, uh, progression and move on to the next one or that read to the next progression, whatever you want to term as quarterbacks do. So – I'm curious to see because the one thing he has always said about Trey Mitchell and about Austin Herrick was that they got those guys in the right spot. Austin clearly had more 
um, sort of God-given ability than Trey Mitchell. I think that's fair to say. Austin also had that can't lose, don't want to lose attitude that I think you can't teach. You just have to be, you just have to have that instilled in you. I think all the quarterbacks that are on the roster physically gifted are better than the quarterbacks, including Austin and Trey Mitchell. They don't have a command of how do we get in the right set? How do we make sure everything's in the right spot to get everybody to be successful? That's They make that step, and I think this offense is going to skyrocket, and you're going to see points per game jump up to 30, 35, pushing 40 points a game because I see it. I think you see it, Mike. They're just a little bit knick-knack here and there plays away from blowing teams out, and that's that's how the game works, right? Those plays determine. I think Sanders says it all the time. There's really four or five plays you can look at determine a game all over the place so we didn't hit things to happen or somebody hit things to happen. And when those start hitting, I think this offense is really going to skyrocket the point total. Well, and trends emerge from those few plays. You know, say that, as Coach Sanders has said this a couple of times now since last game, you had the 30- and 40-yard plays rather than those being 10 or 12. because That's what he's really harped on this week. Well, in the running game, because he did point out the running game uh, on a few plays, if those are 30 or 40, all of a sudden you're not looking at 3.8 yards to carry against Furman. You're up around 5 or 6, and that's a more manageable number. Those are winning numbers on the ground. If you look at one big play from the first game of the year against Sanford, I think I'd point to the big punt return from Elijah Huzzy being one of them. They're special teams, right? Didn't have the big play in the special teams game this past week against Furman. Uh, so if you – and let's even go back a couple of years for Tyree Robinson, the interception that sealed the game late on, right, the big play. And turns out you needed it because it was an interception with like a minute 50 left in the game on the road, and you were in, I think it was a three-point contest at that time, interception makes it 10, and then all of a sudden Citadel goes down the field and scores with 30 seconds left a touchdown. So that ended up being the game-winning score, big play. And I know we can make fun of coaches, and we often do, but – when they say turnovers, when they say kicking game, when they say the old cliches like that, it ends up being the case more often than not. You didn't have the big play on special teams last week. You didn't have the uh, big defensive play. I'll be interested to see what the defensive line does this game because, yes, I know Coach Sanders talked about last night. He thought there was progress from game one to game two. This is going to be a difficult game for them. Um, will Blake Bockworth be back? Don't know the answer to that. I know he's progressing and looking like he's going to be back at some point this year. But this is a huge, especially with the departure now of Juwan Ross, and he uh, addressed it in the press conference on Monday. Juwan Ross no longer with the team. So now we know that he will not be back, and he said it was kind of a mutual decision. Big loss, right, because he was very productive at Old Dominion. ETS, he was already very thin at that position up front in the middle. You have Timmy Dorsey step in there, and people expect big things out of Timmy Dorsey. Um, how are they going to be able to handle this ground-and-pound, rough-and-tumble in the trenches game? He named, Coach Sanders did the secondary last night, guy by guy, and you know, we, you and me both know the team in terms of the personnel, but when he went through it, Grondelitz, Mike Price, Elijah Hudson, Tyree Robinson, I was like, gosh, especially after these first two games, that is a really, really strong unit. You look at the linebackers, Jalen Porter made a couple of big plays in the game Saturday. You've got some depth there. Zach West was in on a couple of plays. You know, like even even the guys that were you know not you're typically going to count on it. Jared Folks maybe wasn't around the ball as much. There were a few big plays for him though. You know, I think that you get Donovan Manuel is obviously a stud. There's no question about that. He's got two interceptions in two games, and he seems to always be in the mix. Those units are great. Those aren't the units though that are going to be under direct fire. Linebackers to an extent, right? But when you're on defense this game, it is so much about what you're able to do up front. And because of ETSU's scheme, those linebackers are semi-up front. But you know what I mean. The, the defensive line is always going to be the first point of attack. And so how are they able to respond to this type of game is going to be interesting because, as we know, it is the least experienced unit of the three. It is probably the thinnest unit of the three, especially now. And that's going to put more pressure on the other units. So those secondary, 
members that we talked about, those linebackers, they're going to have to play huge out of their mind in order to make sure that they're supporting those fronts. Gap control is what you hear a lot of, especially against the academies and the academies that run the ball more than that, Army, Navy, Citadel. So it's going to be important because game one, I thought it was interesting, Coach said, you know, we saw guys that would, you know, hit their assignment but then look up to find the ball to make a play. And once we convinced them, if you just control this gap and the guy comes to your gap, you make a tackle. But if you just control this gap and you don't let your guy shove you out of that gap, you win, we make plays, we win the game. And I think it was very quick turnaround for the defensive linemen to figure that out to what to be successful. This is challenging because they hand the ball off and run it so heavy, and it's going to go by your nose a lot, right? But a lot of times they unblock you on purpose to see what you're going to do, right? They leave a guy unblocked, whether it's a tackle, whether it's an end, whether it's a linebacker, they change the keys all the time. That's what makes this option attack so tough. The eye control and maintain the gap for the front three is going to be imperative because if those guys start guessing or here's the deal, and here's what generally happens. They control the A gap, fullback goes by them, you know, they didn't make a play. You know, they didn't, you know, same thing, same thing, same thing. All of a sudden they're like, you know what, I'm tired of that guy running by me. I'm going to make that play. And that's what messes up the whole system because it's not his job to get that guy. Him and a linebacker, two guys go get the same guy. They pull the ball, and now it's two-on-one advantage for the Citadel, and that's how they hit the big plays. The option has a bad rep for three yards in a cloud of dust, and yes, there are times that drives do that. But it's really meant to bust a 30-, 40-yard missed assignment play, the big play. And so can you maintain that? I thought it was interesting last year because in the run game, there wasn't huge plays for either team. Now, both teams really had massive days rushing, a little over 200-plus yards for Citadel on the ground, approaching three. Well, let me check that. I think they may have had 300 on the ground last year in the contest. They had uh, they had 229. Okay, so both teams had 224-229. There were two huge plays that made a pass game, 59-yard touchdown for Will Huzzy, the 73-yarder you mentioned there. But there really there was one long run for Citadel, 49 yards. The next was around 14, which isn't massive. ETSU had a 31-yarder and a 24-yarder. You know, the rest of those were all, you know, seven, eight, nine-yard rushes, which are big but not huge. And the reason I bring that up because there were five possessions of ten plays or more for each team combined, I should say. Three for the Citadel, two for ETSU, all led to scoring drives. Then there were two quick drives where you had the long touchdown passes. Everything else that were single-digit drives where you didn't get big plays, everyone led to punts. So the only scoring you saw was on 10-player more drives or the two quick hitters, right? So if you can eliminate the big plays to further all that conversation, to back up everything you were saying about what is going on, they have to be able, the front three, to maintain the possession, to do their job, not to allow those 15, 20-yard rushes to put extra pressure on the linebacker to not give up what Coach Sanders, I thought, did a nice job explaining of. If everybody does their job and you stretch a play out, then the safety has to make a play in like a three-, four-yard area. If they don't do that, then he's trying to guard two guys in a 12- to 15-yard area, or they've already made the pitch and the running back has 12 yards to figure out what he's going to do, uh, 12 yards wide, that is. Then you can make a guy miss, and that's what trouble. So it is very imperative for that. The other thing I would say, ETSU has been successful the last few years, I think, at somewhat controlling, especially against the Citadel, is their safeties have not been afraid to come down and hit people. And you have to have hard-hitting safeties to do that because you have to be willing to take somebody head-on. And the cornerback play is underrated in this because they're going to get chopped down, right? They're going to get cut. They're going to get cut. And all you need is for somebody to look down and try to push a guy away and somebody's ran by you. So if you can trust it, you're just going to knock them down and then keep your eyes up. So the eye, the eye control is one thing, gap control is the other, but I 100% back everything up you say about the gap control and everything that the front three have to do. People want to say, long day. People want to say the Citadel's terrible, they're 0-7. This should be easy pickers, right? I think we tr- 
try and be a little bit level-headed about the fact, like, look at the history, you know, look at ETSU just under Randy Sanders, you know, these are going to be one-score games. One reason to be confident about the fact that this is not going to be the blowout that some might want, of course, it'd be great to be able to go into Charleston and walk away with a 41-7 win or, you know, 28-3 and completely control the Bulldogs. You can look back to the first game of the Southern Conference season and you say, okay, Mercer, right? 42-20, you put up 42 against Citadel. Throw out the first half of every single game in the Southern Conference and in spring football for everybody, in my opinion. Do it for ETSU, specifically that first quarter against Sanford, right? You came out and they were, whether it was more ready to go, more prepared, you were on your back, but you just had a hard time processing that, wow, this is really happening. I'm playing football in February. These games count. I have to do what I'm used to doing. The first time they played since, you know, uh, what, November of 2019, that being the box. Now, Citadel, of course, did play in the fall, but when you do play in the fall, I think there's kind of another mental twitch that is tempting to get caught in of, well, we had our fall season, so now come out, okay, spring football, you know, we can kind of walk through it, and that's the schedule, right? That's the that's what your body is used to at the collegiate level. It's, all right, we had our games, and keep in mind, their games in the fall were not easy. South Florida, number one Clemson. Eastern Kentucky, that was they an odd one. They bought that. That was that a shocker. That was an odd one, no that, doubt. That was a shocker. No doubt. Um, Eastern Kentucky now has been on the verge of the FCS playoffs in the last couple of years, if not making it one year, I believe. Um, but seven wins each of the last two years. Now three and six this year, yes. Very odd result for sure. But then you go to Army and you keep that within a score. Uh, so it's not like you were playing, you know, walkover games, right? Show up and win. You had the number one team at FBS. South Florida, another FBS side. Army, obviously, we know the type of football that they play and another FBS school. Um, so you got a whole season's worth of physicality in those four games. You come back, ah, spring football. You're outscored 28 nothing. First 28 go to Mercer. After that, you outplay them. I get it's easy once you're down 28, and Mercer ends up winning by 14. Chattanooga game could have gone either way. Western Carolina, and this is what, something I'm going to ask Luke Morrow, is was that really the first time that your eyes kind of popped, like, wow, uh, things are not going well. Like, th- this is bad now. Because you look at the rest of the results, again, Eastern Kentucky, yes, we can argue that one for sure. And it was a 23-point win, no doubt. I mean, the fact that they were in their own building – and they lose Eastern Kentucky by 23. Yes, certainly eye-popping. But you come off a week earlier a game against the number one team in the country, Clemson. Um, so I'm going to ask him that because everything else, I think, especially the spring season, throw out that first half, those next ten quarters, I don't think there's too much to be upset about. I, that's why I think this game is going to be as tight as it is because, yeah, the zero in the win column is going to play mentally on the minds of Citadel. But they could flip that. How bad do we want to get rid of that? If you look at the last ten quarters, how well have we played? Should we have beaten Western Carolina? Hey, bad loss. No doubt about it. But we were in that game. We could have won that game. Could have won the Chattanooga game. And are they able to mentally turn what right now I'm sure is a struggle into motivation? Start of the game has been horrific in the spring. Absolutely. They've given up. They kicked off. Mercer, one play, 75-yard touchdown. Game two. Chattanooga, their first play from scrimmage, 75 yards, touchdown pass. Scored the first 14, Chattanooga. The first play for Western Carolina was a 36-yard run plus a 15-yard penalty. Wow. They score two plays later, three plays, 61 yards, and they are down all three games in league play in, what is that, five plays? They've given up 21 points in five plays to start games. So I'm curious about that. I, I watched the Army game because I watch all the Army games. They onside kicked to start the game and got it and immediately threw an interception. Ugh. Went play action, tried to go over the top, and then turn it right back over. And so the start of the games, the last four, have been horrific. Even when they pull something like, hey, let's onside kick against Army, they'll never know what's we coming. We got it. And they didn't get it, ah. and then they turn it over. So I, I, I kind of want to ask Luke, like, our – as soon as ETSU touches the ball, are you expecting the worst possible scenario, or do, or is that a Super Bowl win if you just stop somebody and force a punt? Even if they give up a big play, do, can they not give up a touchdown to start the game? Because it, it to give up back-to-back 75-yard touchdowns is impressive, but then to watch Western Carolina just a run up the middle that wasn't anything special and Spencer be able to break it. And then right before half, there was a fumble 
Citadel's driving. They fumble. Western gets it 50-some seconds to go in the half. And 67-yard touchdown run. And, again, it was one of those where it's like, all right, we'll hand it off the middle, see what happens. And then, boom, he just runs right between the two safeties and right by the two safeties for a touchdown. So, Citadel's given up some very big, uncharacteristic chunk plays that I'm, I'm just curious to talk to Luke to see sort of his thoughts on this. And we'll talk to him uh, after this break. So, we'll step aside for a timeout. We'll talk to Luke Morrow, play-by-play man, Citadel Bulldogs. Right after this timeout, San Jose sidekick on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Over the last 70 years, Johnson City Power Board has had a few different looks, but we've remained the same trusted partner you rely on. Now, we've changed our name to Bright Ridge to match our vision, to deliver on our promise of great service you can count on, embracing common sense technology to strengthen the communities we serve. We're glad to be your public power provider. Bright Ridge. Sandos and the sidekick back with you. Jay Sandos, Mike Gallagher, as promised. Luke Morrow on the phone. He's down in Charleston, South Carolina. He's been calling the Citadel Bulldogs several years now. He's got a good finger on the pulse. And the first question is, man, Luke, his team seems awfully snake-bitten, especially to start the game. And it seems to be a microcosm of how the season's gone for you this year. Yeah, it sure has been. It's been a, a frustrating, well, going back to the fall. It's been a tough stretch here for the Bulldogs uh, on and off the field with some of the things they've been dealing with. And that's what makes it so frustrating. Is now the Citadel, they've lost nine games in a row. It's their longest losing streak in about 20 years. Uh, but it's also how they're losing, as you said. I mean, to, to lose by one possession each of the last two weeks and then going back to week one against Mercer, it was a one-possession game in the fourth quarter and they ended up losing by 14 and it comes down to just a play or two uh this past week against western carolina they had a costly fumble that was a a 14 point swing and they lost by seven so that was the big difference in the game and as you alluded to uh they've really done themselves in with slow starts for whatever reason over the past really three years the bulldogs have um, been lousy in the first half they've been outscored by over 300 points in the first half the last three years but then they outscore their opponents by about 150 points in those three years in the second half. So for whatever reason, uh, they dig themselves a hole, they climb back in the second half, but sometimes that hole is too deep and they can't get out in time, and and that's been the case uh, so far here in this spring Southern Conference season. Talk about the switch, because in the fall we saw Brandon Rainey. Of course, he was so good for the Citadel last year. Uh, and then Jalen Adams moves over really from the defensive side of the ball. And, of course, fans around here know Jalen Adams because um, well, him and his whole family have been born and bred in Johnson City, so they're very familiar with you know, sort of his lore of what he did at Science Hill High School. But talk about sort of Adams taking over. Yeah, uh, he's been exciting and, and fun to watch. Obviously, he's still learning the offense. I mean, he's learning on the fly. This is his first time in that role. He uh, appeared as a quarterback in a uh, – backup role got into a couple of games in the fall but this is the first time that he's the starter and the coaches have said that uh, you know they're still trying to figure out what works what doesn't work trying to get him as familiar as they can with the offense so that's why coach Thompson head coach of the Bulldogs has said that this is really like three seasons for the Citadel if you go back to this past fall they had Brandon Rainey like you mentioned who had started 20 straight games for the Citadel was a, a upperclassman and had been there for a while he played in the fall and then he graduated in December. Jalen Adams takes over now. There's a lot of moving pieces, a lot of guys that are not on the team even just from the fall. And so now Jalen Adams is running the team as a first-time starter. And then fast forward to this upcoming fall uh, where you're going to get some guys back who have opted out. Uh, so unfortunately, some guys are suspended for this spring season, so you'll get those players back. You'll obviously add the recruits. Uh, and it's going to look like a very different team in the fall. So they're looking at this as, you know, three different seasons here in the span of about 15 months, and it makes it challenging with all the different pieces, uh, moving pieces that they've had to deal with. In regards to Jalen Adams, he's a lot different than Brandon Rainey. Brandon was a, a fullback playing the quarterback position and was, was a hard runner between the tackles for Jalen, uh, very elusive, explosive. They like to get him on the perimeter in the open field. He's uh, fun to watch. He can make guys miss. Uh, they put him in the shotgun sometimes. So it has led to some changes in the offense that are attempts to just build around him and his playmaking ability. 
and you see some of those flashes, but obviously there's plenty of growing pains as well for a kid that's running this offense really for the first time in the spring. Luke, you spoke in some generalities on the field, off the field, things like that in terms of where the program is struggling to maintain, really. I mean, nine losses in a row, uh, certainly having the zero in the win column right now, we talked about in our first segment, is I'm sure weighing on the minds of a lot of people in the program, especially when you have to sit after four straight losses with that zero for a couple more months before you get the chance to win again, and you've lost your first three in the spring. If you're to look at the different units, if you're to look at different areas of the game where this team has really struggled, uh, what would you pinpoint if you're to point out a couple of them? Yeah, I think the, the most obvious or the most simple one is taking care of the football. Uh, the Citadel averages so far from the fall to the spring, of course, this is all considered one season, if it doesn't feel like it. Uh, so they average, you know, two turnovers per game. They're minus, I think it's minus seven in the turnover margin. And as I said, Saturday against Western Carolina, uh, they had a chance to go tie the game uh, before half, and they fumbled at the uh, Catamount 30, and then the next play, Western Carolina got a touchdown, and suddenly you go from a tied game going into the locker room to now down, uh, it was 15, in fact, and they ended up losing by seven. So some errors like that, they, they, uh, they don't have a large margin of error right now in a large part because they're missing a lot of pieces, whether it's because of the spring season, all sorts of different issues. They just don't have, like all teams, uh, the Citadel, I mean, they're dealing with about a 70-man roster when it's usually you know, up over 100. So y- you have uh, a young defense. Willie Eubanks is injured right now, who's their best player. Uh, he's out uh, for this, at least the next couple of games here in the spring. So you have a very young defense. They're missing four of their defensive starters just from the spring season alone this past week against Western Carolina. And then on offense, uh, they're thin as well, where in the backfield, they're using a freshman walk-on as their B-back, which is a very important position in this offense, of course. And he's played every snap the last two weeks, uh, a freshman walk-on who had never played prior. At the A-back position, they're running backs. They've really used only two guys, and one of them is a converted quarterback. Uh, at the wide receiver position, they've only used two guys, and one of them had never uh, gotten into a game prior to this spring. Uh, they used only 30 players in total two weeks ago against Chattanooga, where obviously you need – you know, if you include special teams, 25 starters, uh, they use 30 guys. So it tells you how thin they are, and that uh, doesn't help, obviously. So that makes it more challenging than when you, you turn over the football, you commit some penalties. Penalties have been costly these last couple of weeks. They had over 100 yards of penalties two weeks ago. So when you make some errors like that, that obviously compounds the issue. It makes it more challenging to come back from it. It just seems like right now um, – for the Bulldogs within these games. It's almost like one step forward, two steps back, just some costly errors at times that, that really do them in the slow starts we mentioned that makes it hard to come back when you're working with uh, a young, inexperienced team at the moment. I think I can talk myself into the results of the first six games not being uh, tragic for this team, right? Like the South Florida game. Okay, first game of the fall season. It's going to be a really weird year, obviously. You keep it within three scores against an FBS school, that's always probably going to be some semblance of success. So that's you know not bad, right? 27 to 6, a loss. Uh, considering everything that went into it, uh, you'll take it. Number one, Clemson, obviously, you know, name program, one of the best programs in the country year in, year out. Okay, that's a throwaway. Eastern Kentucky, okay, you, you can probably sway me that you're at home. It's an FCS school, your lone FCS school of the fall season, and they're a team that uh, struggled this year, definitely 3-6 and six in the fall. But you're coming off the game against number one Clemson, right? So maybe a bit of a letdown, and you uh, aren't able to come out and put forth the kind of effort that you would have needed if maybe you were playing you know, another FCS school right before that, rather than it being the number one school in the country at FBS. So I can even talk myself into that one. And then Army, obviously, you'll take that result, 14-9, a chance to win that game. Uh, Mercer, okay, people say, well, they got blown out. You gave up 28, the first 28 of the game. Again, first game of a separated split season. You don't know what to expect. You outplay them in the second half. So I can even see that one. Chattanooga, hot start, right? And then you get to Western Carolina, and that was really the first time, I think, where I stepped back and said, wow, this really is a struggle. Uh, this, This could be... Uh, not a flash in the pan, couple of results here and there, but this uh, spring season could really be throughout a difficult one for Citadel to navigate. Were there other times where you stepped back and said that same thing before Saturday against Western Carolina, or, or was that really the eye-opener for this program? 
Uh, yeah, it's a good question. You know, you had that feeling probably beforehand, but Western Carolina was the, the big game, as you mentioned, because you went into that one where both teams are on eight-game losing streaks. Western Carolina had averaged to lose by 35 points per game in those eight games, and the Citadel, you know, they've won nine of their last 11 against them, four of their last five there in Cullowee. So you were going into that game thinking, okay, here's where we finally get one. We, we will fight the ship. We put things together. And obviously it didn't go that way. And credit Western Carolina, they played really well, and they beat the Citadel. And uh, that was the most uh, uh, frustrating, I would imagine, of the losses because, as you were pointing out, if you're into moral victories, and I know most fans are not, there have been plenty for the Citadel in that even when we ended that fall season and they didn't win a game, you know, three were against FCS teams. They played pretty well in all three games. And just the fact that we were playing football in the fall, uh, I think the results, everything was just kind of gravy. And we were just happy, hey, we, we got some games in. They played hard. They competed. They played well. At least we could play some football. Now here in the spring, when you're going up against the other conference teams, um, the expectations obviously probably are a little greater that you want to certainly win these games and compete for a Southern Conference championship. And, uh, again, to fall behind against Mercer and Chattanooga but come back in the second half, even in losses, you felt like, well, you know, they kept, they kept fighting. They did some good things in the second half. If they could play like that for a full game, they could be pretty good. And uh, this Saturday, that's why against Western Carolina, that was the expectation that, okay, this is when we're going to play our uh, first complete game and beat a team like this on the road. And to only manage 14 points and to, um, you know, have a couple of turnovers and, and let that game, uh, you know, lose that game on the road, a winnable game certainly, uh, when they had a chance to tie it in the fourth quarter and couldn't punch it in, uh, makes it very frustrating. So it's been a tough year, uh, but I know just speaking from a fan perspective, a lot of people chalk this up to just the unique situation that we're playing in the spring for the first time. The Bulldogs are missing about a quarter of their roster, if not more. And uh, a lot of fans are happy that at least they have games to watch. Of course, they would love for the Citadel to win these games. Um, but uh, obviously, we, we, we understand it's not a normal situation. And uh, they certainly hope to bounce back Saturday against ETSU to finally get in that win column. Well, if you look at the last two years, Luke, uh, Luke Morrow, play-by-play man, Citadel Bulldogs join us on Santos and the sidekick. It, it's going to come down to one possession. ETSU, a three-point win a couple years ago down there, 26-23. It was a four-point win for the Citadel. Came down to really about a half yard. Uh, if you remember, Citadel keeping ETSU out of the end zone, winning 31-27. So I'm going to go out on a limb and say this one's going to come down to what the Citadel has seen the last couple of weeks, a one-possession game. Yeah, it's a safe assumption. You know, that's what the Bulldogs do. And that's why it's fun to call the games. Even when they're 0-7, that's not fun. That's not the fun part of the job. But it's not like they're getting blown out uh, each week. They give you competitive games that have come down to the fourth quarter more frequently than not because with that option offense, uh, it shortens the game, as you well know, uh, limits possessions, can keep it closer. And then just the, the style or the fight of the Bulldogs, to go to a school like that, you know the type of athletes and people that you have, and they never quit. So, you know, you fall behind 28 nothing against Mercer. They still found a way to uh, have an on, be an onside kick away from having a chance to tie it in the fourth quarter. So um, that is the, certainly the, the credit you give to the team that they always play tough competitive games. And that's why when you play that style, it can come down to, a play or two, a mistake or two, and that leads to the turnovers, which have been a problem for the Bulldogs. So they play a lot of close games. The difference becomes, can you make enough plays to win those close games? And they haven't been able to so far here in the spring. Uh, obviously, we'll be looking for a quicker start on Saturday instead of falling behind. And and should be a fun one regardless because that's just Citadel football. They're always playing close, tight games. Even if they don't win, uh, they usually come down to the fourth quarter. Well, Luke, we appreciate uh, the time today, and I'll look forward to seeing you down there on Saturday, my friend. Hey, likewise. Always appreciate the time. Safe travels, and uh, looking forward to the game. All right, that's Luke Morrow, play-by-play man of the Citadel. More of Santos and the sidekick will break down. Well, I'll tell you about the special breakdown segment after this timeout. Santos sidekick on the Buccaneers Sports Network. This responsible gaming message is brought to you by the Tennessee Lottery. When you play the lottery, it's important to play responsibly. Know your limit and spend only what you can afford. Set a budget and stick to it. And remember, as long as you're having fun, you're always a winner in our book. The Tennessee Lottery is a proud supporter of National Problem Gambling Awareness Month. To learn more about problem gambling resources, visit tnlottery.com. Sidekick. We have a mission. Wrap it up. Here we go. 
I've never seen you more excited. Oh, here we go. I get to flip the script finally. I know nothing about this. Yes, this is what I, I like. I'm not co-signing this at all. I like when you get to sit there, and then I'm like, oh, we got something. You're like, oh, I got something for you. And then you throw it at me, and then you got to think real quick. You don't have a whole lot of time to yeah. come up with a good take. So, this is called Ranka Mike G. Okay. Most shocking to least shocking. I'm going to give all five, and I will give you a few seconds Can to I ponder. I write these down? This sounds like a I lot guess, to I guess. About. You know, I it's guess. It's kind of early when we're taking all right. this. In no particular order. Okay. VMI's 3-0 for the first time since 1981 and also ranked for the first time in the top 25. Yeah. Another, and again, no particular order. The Citadel is winless this season still. Wofford is 1-2, and they've now lost three straight to Samford. Number four, SoCon offenses are struggling. Seven teams are averaging under 20 points per game. For an example, last year, eight teams averaged over 20. And the last one. SoCon officiating. Go. <laughs> Those are your five. For, I want a ranking from most shocking to least shocking. Can you give me number four again? Number the four is. Statistical drop off for the SoCon. Okay, right. seven teams right now okay. averaging under 20 points per game. Gosh. Last year, eight teams were averaging over 20. And there's a bunch of others that go with that too. You gave me some more. I got a bunch of stuff. While you think about that, let me let me let me further that. Okay, so uh, last year, every team averaged over 325 yards of offense, and four teams averaged over 400. This year, there's three teams still averaging over 400. That's not bad, but five teams are under 325 yards of total offense. There were four teams last year. So, eight teams averaged over 20, four averaged over 30 last year. So, I don't know if it's the Yeah, multifaceted stat, for sure. Yeah. Well, also, you need to further your point on officiating, because I think ETSU fans, at least, which are the majority that listen to this show, yeah, so are Western obviously Carolina. familiar Let, with okay. the game this past so, week for the Bucs, but yeah, you have some Western so Carolina. Western it was Carolina, pretty absurd. Oh, Western Carolina intercepted a pass, would have went up 28-6. to six. And there was a review, and I've watched it a lot, and I do not see where knee was down. They show a reverse angle. The knee's clearly not down. They show one from the end zone that's literally 70 yards away, and there, it does look like maybe the knee hit. Not definitively, but maybe. But, again, if you look at the reverse angle, it, I think it's humanly impossible if the reverse <laughs> angle shows air that the 70-yard away would give you his knee was down. But they reversed the call. Then there was the safety non-safety right before halftime, where the ball was touched this one's on very a kickoff. Yeah, so Raleigh Webb, very talented return man for the Citadel. We know him too well. Yes, we do. And Western Carolina kicks off. It bounces short. Webb touches it at the one. It kicks up on the second bounce. It hops up. He hits his hand on it. It's, I mean, there's no question he touches it because the referee actually announces he touched the ball in the field of play. He goes back into the end zone to pick it up and tries to get out of the end zone because he touched it outside the goal line. Gets tackled in the end zone. Western celebrating the safety. Yeah. They give a touchback. And, and unless there's a ruling that I don't know, and I've tried to look it up, I, I can't find it. Unless there's a muff rule where, like, it has to be fielded cleanly in the field of play, I assume that's a safety like everyone else that was watching the game. And the fans that were there, the, the TV crew. Literally everyone but the referees in the safety. Exactly. And so that, that, I think, is baffling. So uh, there was also one in the um, – Sanford Furman game, it was head-scratching. I'm trying to remember off the top of my head that it looked like for sure this was the call. They review. I don't see anything, but they overturned the call. So this isn't just a specific to ETSU sour grapes. This, I, I have seen at least five, um, I would call egregious, where like I'm just very baffled and confused. Like if you gave me five for the whole year, I'd be like, you know, cool. All right, it just happens. But in the last two weeks, I've seen five head-scratching calls that I can't get an explanation for other than either I've been told, like, yeah, they admitted it was wrong or they've issued the we're sorry, but still calls that, that confuse me. Any, any more would you like me to expound on anything else? I think you provided some good background. All right, so ranking – Rank them, Mike G. Firstly, I enjoyed last night on the coach's show. You were saying something about how you're dyslexic sometimes. It yeah. was about the stat with the home and away for 
Furman, and Randy Sanders quickly jumps in without hesitation and said, oh, yeah, Mike could be a SoCon official. Yeah. <laughs> I enjoyed that. He, uh, it is Randy I did get Sanders the call uh, backwards, so that's what he's saying, right? Uh, because they, they – Yeah, number zero at ETSU, yeah. even though Elijah Pickleton's 40 yards away. Yeah. Uh, number one is SoCon officiating. And you and me have had some conversations off air, and one of them I enjoyed where you decided to rank the sports – and how bad officiating is in each of the SoCon, worst to best in terms of officiating. Mm-hmm. And to my surprise, you did not even have football number one, even after the last couple of weeks. Um, and I won't go any further on that to, to save some yes. embarrassment for other officials in other sports. But uh, you did have football up there, and I think there's some recency, uh, some recency bias in there. But I was, I was impressed that you didn't go all the way and say, look, have you seen the last couple of weeks? This is as bad as it gets. Because it certainly does seem that way. I have to put SoCon officiating number one. I, I have never seen a game like that where just three or four come to the top of your head right away. But then you've come down to my office and said, have you seen this in this other game? And this in this other game? Like, it, it just keeps going. If it was just the one game, you get it. Okay, it's a one-off. Bob bad, Johnson had bad a game. bad day. Absolutely. It All happens, right. and at some point you just go, yes, they're human. They have a bad game. I think Coach Sanders even said that before last year. Now, he's feeling bad because two or three times in a row he's been given a, yeah, we missed the call. And at some point, he, <laughs> right. as he said, I, I'm tired of I'm sorry. Can we just get one right? right. Like, But I, if it's a one-off, I 100%. It happens to everybody, right? I mean, I think I said the quarterback for Furman, Sisson, looked to the dugout to get the I tried to insert a two-minute right? warning sure. into a college so, game. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know what you're doing. You don't know what happened, but boom, it, there it is. It, 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 I'm, I'm fine if a call, and even if the only call of the game in the – ETSU one was the misappropriated face mask, okay. but they were fu- Furman's crew came down and they were like, "What about this call?" And I couldn't explain it for calls that went to <laughs> right. ETSU. So right. again, I'm not spilled milk or anything. I-, I still say it was a huge game, but the ETSU had other opportunities to win the game. It was a huge swing. It did this, that, another. I'm not blaming any loss on anything. I'm just saying it is. There's some egregious. It was bad on both happening. sides. Agreed. The Furman ETSU. Totally agree. And again, if it's that one game, oh. but. You've got seemingly a league-wide thing. There was a spot that went ETSU's way where that was like a three-yard difference. <laughs> and even Don Hellman, who never gives credit to an official. I mean, that man would rather fight somebody than say an official did something for his team correctly. Even he said, uh, Jay, I think that uh, I think that's a favorable spot. And I'm like, uh, and I said, yeah, I think he was down. He goes, no, he was down two yards, three yards back. So, yes, again, I'm there. Number two to me is the statistical drop-off. Because I think we knew that this was going to be a year unlike any other, right? You were going to see some odd things. You were going to have guys opt out. You were going to have guys get injured. You were going to have guys that I just don't think are mentally there, right? Because it's hard to do for the one time that you've got to play football in the spring. And I'm not saying that the Southern Conference made the wrong decision. I supported the decision when it happened. I think many of us around the league said, all right, well, Getting a few hundred people together, hitting each other, breathing on each other, getting droplets on each other, quote-unquote, from you know, all the early stuff was out of the droplets. Uh, all that stuff went into the, okay, this is a smart choice. It's not to say it wasn't a smart choice, but we knew it was going to lead to some odd things. I'm not sure I would have, again, league-wide, expected to see what we've seen in terms of those stats that you gave. Because, again, it's not an isolated case. It is not one weekend where we're overreacting to all these stats. It seems that way a little bit because ETSU's only played two games. But we're halfway through the Southern Conference season now. I mean, we're four and a half weeks into a nine-week season because everybody has a bye, right? So it is troubling, I think, but I also do believe it is a one-off because it is this time of year. It is hard to wrap your mind around what you're going out and doing every Saturday in February you have had to live a completely different life as a kid, a college kid, right? Like, you could not have paid me enough money to go to school in a pandemic in college. I mean, those are some of the best years of your life, and these kids have had a full year where they have not been able to, well, some of them have, but you're not supposed to be living this normal college life, right? So, league-wide, though, it, it is surprising. There are reasons for it. I think you can talk yourself into anything, but it is surprising to see that it is that significant, in all of those categories that you talked about. And the other three, honestly, don't really surprise me. Uh, I think that Citadel being winless, that bumps up to three simply because, yes, they get a win somewhere, right? It, 
because of last week. If you would have said 0-6 with the losses to who they had the losses to, oh, it's okay. You know, like I was talking about with Luke, you can justify a lot of those. And you can take, as he said, moral victories from a lot of them. I am a big moral victory guy. I know a lot of fans aren't, and you want that. But I try and find the silver lining in a lot of things, much as it may be surprising for people that listen to the show. The only reason it's as high as three is because I'm not surprised really at all by the other two. BMI being 3-0, and oh, something's going on in Lexington. Look, I mean, the athletic department has been phenomenal over the last you know year or so, right? Like, bat, men's basketball, trending in the right direction. Dan Earl's doing a heck of a job. Um, did he end up winning Coach of the Year? He did, didn't he? He did. He won Coach of the Year. I mean, my via my key dates. That team was one to be reckoned with. Yeah, maybe you're – your that's support it. is the reason. I, that's that's right. When you got, got on board. I, I can't believe you didn't draw that conclusion. I, I don't think it's a coincidence that right around the time you started picking them in bold predictions, things started to turn around. Football, we know that Reese Udinsky is a phenomenal talent. I know there were some departures this year where people said, oh, I don't know. Are they going to be able to keep it up? Do they have the horses? But that was trending more in the positive as well, football-wise. And then, you know, Wofford, one and two, three straight losses to Sanford. Um there is a lot of parity in the Southern Conference, and this is still a young season. I do not think Wofford is going to finish below 500. I think that they're still going to be a you know four and four, five and three team at worst. I think they still have a chance to make the playoffs. Quite honestly, um, three in a row to Sanford, yeah, okay, but you're, you're well, still going to win out to make the playoffs. But you're, yeah, no doubt. But you're still going back to the Devlin Hodges years, right? When he was there for Sanford. I mean, that three straight would be. What, one year of Hodges or two years of Hodges? Just one. Just one. Still. It's the last year Oladokun would have got him. So let's and Welch mark, this year. Mark that Three off. different quarterbacks. Mark that off with Hodges because, again, I mean, the most statistically prolific quarterback in the history of the FCS. Then you've got, okay, uh, Wofford loses to him in a normal year in 2019 without Hodges. All right, one loss could happen here and there. And then you've got the spring season. So here, here's what I was going to shot. So Wofford has won four straights on the conference championships. So yeah. Sanford is not – I wouldn't – they're not in the lower third. They're in that middle third. And usually when you win championships, right, you usually beat the middle of the lower third. Normally. And not, it's not set in stone. There's just – but for whatever reason, I think it's about matchups, right? We talk about this all the time. And Sanford just happens to be a terrible matchup for Wofford for whatever reason. Sure. So, you know, uh, let me That's throw – That's a good one. I, like I, I got another bonus one for okay. you. This is a bonus one. This isn't um, – a uh, ranked most shocking, less shocking. This is just, will you be shocked or not shocked? Reese Udinsky has committed to play at Maryland next year. He has. I, I missed that. So, will he, will you be shocked if he takes over for Tungavaola? To his younger brother, if you didn't know, there. Will he take over for him, the incumbent? Would you be shocked if he does? Or would you be more shocked if he's the backup? I would be shocked if he does. And I like Reese. All right, there you go. I like Reese. All right, let's do our bold predictions and wrap but it up here. Let's, uh, you want to slow your roll, then? Let's that dial it back just a bit, Jason. Tom Brady won't make that mistake again. Antonio Brown to Tampa. Absolutely not. Nailed it. Clay Thompson, comeback player of the year. Quarterback news is quietly. The season Jim Harbaugh is taking Michigan to the national championship. I said 2023. No, so I pushed it out further. You and Sanders with a touchdown. It went from 60 to 70 to 90. This is the worst take ever by my daughter. Now, what's the rules here? This is your game. I think you're up 18 and a half to 17 and Which half. is what I like to hear that I'm winning. And this is key because now we've got six bold predictions. Mega, super, March version of bold okay. predictions. Before we do that, yep. I want to take a look at some connections to ETSU and even you personally in the NCAA tournament and get your takes on okay. it. Firstly, Oral right. Roberts, I know your boy's there. Yeah, Adam Hildebrandt. So Adam's a buddy. My, actually, it's funny. He... Um, Interviewed for one of our first GA positions before Parker Schwartz got. It's how I actually met him. Mm-hmm. And then uh, this is how good I was at picking the talent and how good, honestly, the, the talent pool in broadcasting is. He ends up turning down talking to me further because he lands the Oral Roberts job. 
So I didn't know as we talked, and, and he, he leaned on me a lot, like a lot of broadcasters do, you know, how do you set up a show, how do you build board? So we were talking, and then one day he calls me and says, hey, uh, you know, we should meet for lunch. I'm like, yeah, you know, I guess. When, when, when are we going to do that? He goes, well, I'm in Kingsport right now. And I'm like, what do you mean you're in Kingsport? Because my wife's family is from Kingsport, and her uh, grandparents still live there, so we come to Kingsport all the time. So I'd only met him because he was in Oklahoma because he had applied for a job. So we've kept a friendship going since then. As a matter of fact, during the pandemic, we talked a lot about different things, and so I uh, messaged him a lot during this run for Oral Roberts. So big Oral Roberts fan. If you need a reason to find a team to pull for in the tournament, Oral Roberts, Adam Hildebrand had a chance to come work at ETSU, but he got a full-time D1 job. You can't argue that. And his wife's from the Tri-Cities. So if you need a random team to pull for, Oral Roberts, let's go. Do you view Belmont as a snub, and do you think that Sanford cost them Absolutely. an NCAA tournament spot? There is not a worse loss for any team <laughs> in America oh, than Bucky. a home loss Bucky to ball. a quad four buckyball McMillan in the Sanford Bulldogs. Not a by worse 13, loss. by the way. Yes. Every matrix of that makes it – you cannot have a worse loss. Every matrix they make, that's the worst loss humanly possible you could have. Tonight, Appalachian State takes on Norfolk State in one of the play-ins. App State, a team that we saw last year, came to Freedom Hall. A tight game. I believe that was the one that was at Freedom Hall. Did they do a home-and-home? Home? Was it back-to-back well, years we, or was it just? No, no, no. We were supposed to go there this year, pandemic. I think it's been right. kicked to the next year. I think we're going up there next year. So, I look back at that game. Unless something's changed, we're supposed to go up there next year. 2019-20 season. Obviously, ETSU was a flamethrower. There was no stopping them. 78-69 to the final. App State did hold their own at Freedom Hall. Did you envision them being in the NCAA tournament within a year of that? No, and this is what App State, this is the only way App State's gotten to the tournament the last two times in the last 20 years, is they've had a player just absolutely lose their mind and go bonkers and average like 30 a game in the tournament. That's what happened back in 01. That's what happened this year. They will go down in flames tonight. To Norfolk State. Okay. Uh, Cleveland State is a team that both you and I got to see up close. I've had ESPN Plus for that game. They were atrocious. They looked horrific. Was that last year? Yeah, and they had a coaching change mid-year. So, I think he got the job like a month before they came here. Yeah, it was something. And he he was basically cleaning up the ashes of a mass exodus. In fact, Stefan Kenich, who's now at Chattanooga, was one of those that was the mass exodus. And they lost by like 25. Again, ETSU was what they were last year, one of the best programs in Southern Conference history and having a 31-season, 16 conference wins. But the turnaround by Cleveland State has been nothing short of incredible. After going 11-21 and 21 last year, they go 19-7 and 7 this year, and they're at a 215 against Houston. I, I think it's great to see that he was able to do that and turn everything around. There's one more Cleveland State tie. Mike Boyd, longtime assistant coach for Murray Bartow, used to be the head coach at Cleveland State after he left Michigan. So a lot of ties uh, to the Vikings, and I, I, I'm impressed because – you knew when he got the job, it was literally like July or August before the season started. You're not in a position to win. And so you knew they'd have a rough year last year, but to see how quickly he was able to flip things around is one of the best turnarounds, I think, in college basketball. Yeah, Dennis Gates. Had a chance to talk to him for about 10 or so minutes uh, when he got the job, or sorry, when he was at shoot-around before ETS, he took out in Cleveland State, and he seemed a little beaten down by the situation, but you could tell that the basketball IQ is there. He's got connections to Leonard Hamilton, who, of course, is a big name in college basketball as well. We got more on him later, right, Leonard Hamilton? Uh, yes. Yes, we do, yes, actually. We yeah, that's okay. right. Oh, he's still down there. Okay, yeah, yeah. for sure. Abilene Christian, uh, the last one, and then we'll get to our bold predictions. Obviously, from moment number one of this season, ETSU got an up-close and personal look at it. They have been a difficult team to stop. They go 23-4. and four. They take on Texas, who with Shaka Smart and lots of hair have been an impressive program. Um, Shaka, I think, was a little bit on the hot seat, it seemed. There's no doubt he was on the hot seat. For a long time, but now he has this year. Yeah, they won the Big 12. So. But he has to take on an Abilene Christian team. He's got to be mad. Since the word go have been very difficult for a post stop. He, he, I mean, if you had to rank the 14 seeds, and I'm sure Southern Conference people may or may not be mad at me at this, but I think clearly the best 14 seed is Abilene Christian. And it's not a year where you have to match up people. So I'm kind of curious because you go to one bubble, and I get it when they're doing the pods and they're trying to keep teams close, and Abilene Christian's Texas, so you, you want to keep people close. There was no need to keep teams close, and I know they did the pure ranking 1 through 68 and ranked it as pure as they could. And it fell that way. That's just a bad break 
for Texas because Abilene Christian is clinical. The question is, can the athleticism of Texas kind of counteract that? And that's what's going to be fun to watch. Bowl predictions, I say no. Abilene Christian, a 14 over a 3. This is how it's going to happen in bowl predictions this week. Okay. We usually just pick kind of three bowl predictions out of a hat, whatever you want to take. We're doing March Madness, bracket-busting, bold predictions. And it's going to be five that are upsets. And you can pick any upset. It has to be based on seed. It can okay. be a 16 over a 1, a 9 over an 8, anything in between. I'm picking Abilene Christian, a 14 over a 3. And you're going to see a theme in my first three. They won in their conference tournament by 24, uh, 22, and then 34. I actually don't know if that first game was in the conference tournament. But uh, it was 25, 22, 34, their final three. They ended the year hot. They won their league in the postseason. They were dominant, and they won big. They have momentum going into the tournament, Abilene Christian. Oh, you're going. Okay, you're going Abilene Christian. Yes. I'm I'm going something, and it's not because he's uh, eerily creeping over to my right, but Wisconsin – Talking about Don Hellman. Wisconsin is going to break the longest win streak in the round of 64 by any coach in NCAA. 29 straight for Roy Williams. Wow. No one's even close. It will be broken. Wisconsin will break the 29 round of 64 win streak of Roy Williams. That's Kansas and North Carolina. So you're telling me you're picking a 9 over an 8 because you're a coward. I, I am. You want me to go next again? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, I'm going to go Syracuse, or as I like to call them, sorry excuse. Sorry excuse. As an 11 seed, we'll beat San Diego State, and they will go to the Sweet wow. 16. Wow. Oh, that's surprising about me. Okay. Uh, I'm going to go with Winthrop. And you see a theme starting to unfold here. Mid-majors, got to show them some love. Obviously, we're at the mid-major level. But, again, look at what they did in their last three. 29-point win over High Point, and my guy, Tubby Smith, who used to be at the University of Minnesota. Uh, Longwood, 21-point victory over them, and then a 27-point victory over Campbell. They cannot be touched. They are 23-1 and this year. They're a 12. They are beating Villanova. The Big 12 has been absolutely, or the Big East, I should say, has been absolutely garbage this year. It has been completely terrible. And so with the combination of a bad conference that Villanova is coming from, a solid year, spectacular this year, great and a hot roll that they're on, 23-1 and team. Winthrop is a 12, knocking out Villanova. All right, and s- sticking exactly with that, you see Santa Barbara taking another Big East team, and Ooh. for everything you just said, UC Santa Barbara, A-12, beating the five, Creighton. That'll be my third one. Uh, that is also my third one. Uh, we did not uh, go back and forth on these. But, again, you look at late in the season, win by eight, win by 16, win by 16, win your conference tournament. I, I mean, it's just I've always wanted an NCAA March Madness system, something to be like, okay, do they meet this criteria, this criteria, this criteria? This is going to be a good test of is there a system that works? So I also have UC Santa Barbara. My second 11 seed, I'm going to go the winner of the Wichita State Drake will beat USC. Ah. I wanted to go with, do you have an idea of who it will be? Will it be Drake or Wichita State? I do not, and I don't care. Uh, you don't I'm just, care at all. I'm just going with the, the, the winner of the, one of the winners of the 11, if not both, uh, seem to win the next game because they get things rolling. So I think you should have to pick it. Uh, I, I, you didn't say that ahead of time. You okay, just said the eleven seed is going to win. I'm going Colgate, fourteen and one. Have played a conference only Ooh. schedule, and they were uh, spectacular in that conference only schedule. Put up 105 against Bucknell, won by 30. They also won by uh, eight against Boston, and then 13 against Loyola Maryland. Again, win your conference tournament, be a mid major, and win big in your conference tournament. Come in with momentum, on fire, Colgate. Twenty year streaks. I, I, I talked 29 with Roy Williams, right? Rutgers been like 20 plus years since they won an NCAA tournament game. They will beat Clemson in the 17. I believe they are in the tournament. That's unbelievable. That's why I'm going with Rutgers because nobody believes that they're in the tournament. Uh, final one. I have gone away from mid-majors on this, but who's hot when it comes to high majors? Georgetown. And Georgetown, after going, I think, like 9-13 and 13 or 9-12 and 12 in the regular season, beat Marquette by 19, pulled one out against Villanova, sure, but then beat Seton Hall by 8, and Creighton in the uh, Big East title game. I guess that's not really high major, quote-unquote, but you still kind of count Big East in basketball as part of that Power Five, Group of Six, Super Six, whatever you want to say. 25-point win in the championship game. I'm going with Georgetown. And finally, we're going to give a lock, too. Who's your lock? Who's your lock? We may have the same one. That's what I was asking. I'm sorry. It's just I I love the Southern Conference. I think Isaiah Miller is a heck of a player. UNCG, though, is a one-trick pony, and I think the line is like 10 or 11 points. I think that they can get it within that. 
but I don't think it's going to be any less than a seven or eight point game. Well, Florida State is. My lock was Florida State, South. but I will, I will, okay. I will go. I will go to my second lock if okay. you want. I will go West Virginia over Moorhead State. I know plenty I was of people. About I know State, many though. people, and Sarah Hacker worked with us many years back at our alma mater. She's fired up about it, and I hate to tell Sarah. That I'm afraid West Virginia is going to run them out of the building. So I'll go with West Virginia. As my Some lock. people in this office have West Virginia winning the entire NCAA tournament. I'm not referencing me. I'm not referencing me. I feel like that's the only guy that would. All right. There's Santa's sidekick. We'll be back with you on uh, Monday or Tuesday. Recap the weekend, and we'll tell you what we got. Probably have to do Tuesday. That way Monday uh, completes NCAA because we're just going to watch NCAA all day. Let's don't lock. Santa's sidekick. Buccaneer. Sports Network.